How are you today? Awesome. I'm Tim. If I haven't met you, I'd like to meet you. Um, so I, I get to do this on uh, Sundays, most Sundays. Nick did it last week, so I have to say most. And he did a great job. And I'm actually going to pick up where he, yeah, that's right, you can do that. He did great. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so yeah, we are in the last week of our uh, Set Apart series through First Peter. Next week we're going to go through Habakkuk. I can promise you I've never done that in my life. So it's going to be fun. But anyway, we're going to finish out First Peter today. Well, sort of. I'm going to hope that you will read the rest of First Peter. I'm going to touch on some of the highlight points to close things out. But in order to get us started today, you know, I might as well just do a little bit of story time. I was reflecting uh, back to seventh grade this week. Seventh grade was a pivotal time. Uh, I can remember in seventh grade, I had an algebra class where our, our teacher really, really wanted to get us all to start Roth IRAs. Um, and then he also, like on career day, uh, went through all the lists of like all the different, like I shouldn't say all those, he didn't get through every career you could do, but he went through some careers to show you the levels of education you could go through. And I can remember scoffing at the notion of ever doing a master's degree or PhD as a seventh grader. I was right then, but anyway, I still did it. <laughs> but something else pivotal happened in seventh grade in my English class. It's actually the first time that I ever took a liking to reading thanks to a wonderful teacher that I had that encouraged reading and helped me find books that I actually was interested in reading. But something even more pivotal happened in that uh, algebra class. I was assigned a book report project with a guy by the name of Adam Wolf. And Adam would later be the best man at my wedding. But we weren't friends yet. We became friends through this book project. We had to read a book called When the Tripods Came. It was sci-fi. I don't really remember much of the book other than the title. At that point, I'm still not completely confident that we read through the book. But that was because the only thing we had to do with the project is we had to make some sort of artistic rendering that showed or depicted a scene from the book. The thing, though, is, is on the cover of the book were these tripods that were attacking teenage people in the book. It was teenage sci-fi. So we got a balloon, like one of the ones that you would get that's got helium in it, and we attached it, you're never going to guess this, to a video tripod with tape. And that was our project. <laughs> Needless to say, we bonded not over the project, but just hanging out, you know. Uh, but there's something else. Uh, we had uh, another guy, I won't say his name, um, although the story does later have a, a good ending, but I had a, a guy that was a bit of a bully to me in English class as well. Uh, and this guy had been kind of a bully through middle school for me. I can remember at one point in shop class in sixth grade, uh, that he, he thought the shirt that I was wearing was t 
too flamboyant. I'll just leave it at that. And so he pushed me off the stool, and I hit the back of my head and cracked it uh, on one of the wood tables. It didn't feel great. And this guy would just kind of pick on me from time to time. I was a shrimpy kid. And, uh, you know, this is before, you know, I started taking down three ways and cheese conies too much at Skyline. Um, actually, I did it then, but it just didn't. Anyway, that's beside the point. In seventh grade, uh, you know, we were in class one day and, and this guy was picking on me. And, and my friend Adam, there, there's something I haven't told you yet about him. Aside from artistic genius with when the tri- tripods came uh, he was a third-degree black belt. In fact, we were in the same place at the same time and didn't even know each other or know that we existed at one point. My dad grew me up on all sorts of karate movies, so we would watch Chuck Norris movies. And Chuck Norris was at the Eastgate Cinema for the debut of one of his movies, and he was autographing photos in which... He had his, you know, signature roundhouse kick photographed. His leg was in the air in a way that I can't do my leg, so I'm not going to try to mimic it. And he signed the photo. Well, Adam's karate group, dojo, I don't really know what to call it, but anyway, they were there doing an exhibition. And so later on, after our friendship, you know, grew, we realized we had the same autographed photo of Chuck Norris from the same event. But anyway, I was being picked on. Adam, he's a third-degree black belt. He steps in. Now, for a bully, this is exciting. Because if you can take down the guy that everyone knows as the black belt, you can rule the seventh graders, apparently. I I don't know. Um, So he decided to put my, my buddy Adam in a headlock which wasn't smart because I don't know if you watch karate movies, but people with black belts, they know where your weaknesses are before you know them. And the guy didn't realize his surroundings, so Adam did, and he he just stepped back two steps and pinned the guy against his wall, against the wall, and then put his arm through and just broke the hold like that. It was like something out of a movie. And you might be expecting that he turned around and whipped the guy. But he didn't lay a finger on him. He just made the guy stop. He never messed with Adam again, and I never got picked on by the guy ever again. I should tell you the fun story. Later on, I was preaching at Mount Carmel, and he ended up coming to service. And it was like bygones be bygones. He wasn't a bully anymore, and it was all good. I told you, a little happy ending there, but I didn't like him in middle school. The reason I tell you that story is uh, I think if we're honest, especially as a person that grew up on karate movies and, you know, Bruce Lee and uh, Jackie Chan and different stuff, like, you know, it's fun to watch people get in combat and fight and all that stuff, but I think we're drawn to people that can win the day in a better way. We're drawn to people that can win the day in a better way. What endeared me to my friend Adam in that moment, obviously at first, was that someone stepped into my defense. 
when I was a scrawny, defenseless person against this bigger football player kind of kid. But it was, it was the grace that someone that could have whooped him gave and let him scurry along. I think, even if we're honest, we're drawn to that in movies. Some say, I wouldn't, but I still like the movie. Some say that Spider-Man 2 is one of the greatest comic book films of all time. You can debate that if you want to. I prefer the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Anyway, I'm a nerd. The reason people say that is because in the, in the ending of the movie, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, uh, in the end of the movie, Dr. Octopus, yes, this is comic book movies here, Dr. Octopus, he's got the tentacles and everything. He's got this di- diabolical plan, and, you know, Spider-Man could, you know, again, whip him, but instead, he talks sense to him and turns the villain into a bit of a her- hero, and the villain ends up dying to end his own plot and saving everybody else. On a biblical level, did you know in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, Paul and Silas are jailed after they disrupt somebody's money scheme by using a spiritually charged woman that is able to do some fortune telling and stuff like that. They end up getting annoyed by her going around and following them and saying nonsense. And so they cast the evil spirit out of her and she becomes a Christian. And the people that were making money off of her decide, we can't have this. So they get Paul and Silas thrown into prison. And all of a sudden, at midnight at night, an angel, an angel comes and, and, uh, and opens the gates, and there's this earthquake, and they escape. And when the jailer realizes that they've escaped, he decides to do the unthinkable, and he thinks he's going to end his life because he has failed at his job. Paul and Silas escape, but they don't leave the scene, and they stop him. And instead, they risk their lives with this jailer that could have re-imprisoned them, and instead they baptize him and his whole family. I think we're drawn to these kinds of stories where people take the high road, the moral road, the self-sacrificing road, to bring grace, mercy to other people, even if they don't deserve it. And in truth, that's the way of Jesus. And it's the way that Peter teaches in 1 Peter to the Christians that he's writing to. If you remember over the last few weeks, we've talked about how 1 Peter is a letter that's written by Peter uh, to the folks in uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor at the time, uh, the Christian folks that are probably living amongst Gentiles and facing persecution from people that don't like their way of living and want to make life difficult. And the per- persecution that they're facing may not have to be like the like super serious imminent death sort of thing, It can be everything from chastising them to creating economic headache to uh, family constraints from within, which is a key point based off of the passages that we're going to get at today. You see, a a layer of this persecution factor that occurs for these Christians at this time is what happens within the family. 
You know, many of us sitting in this room today have generations of family of faith. Maybe you became a follower of Jesus because your parents were, and they became followers of Jesus because their parents were. And so the, the faith was kind of passed down. There's a family component to the faith family that you now belong to. A blood tie. But in the early church, when the gospel was being spread throughout the world, not everybody was a part of the faith. The gospel could come to a laborer. It could come to a slave. It could come to a husband or a wife where their spouse was not yet a believer. It could come to a child who risked being disowned by their family for accepting the reality that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And if you remember, we've mentioned the fact that for Peter, these Christians that he's writing to are asking this question, what gives? I embrace this way of life so that I can experience the goodness of God. And yet the circumstances around me feel as if the opposite of goodness. How, therefore, should I live? Do I resist? Do I fight back? Do I take up arms? Do I oppress my oppressors? Do I reject my family? Do I give back what is being done to me and making my life more challenging? And Peter's response throughout is for the believers to emulate Jesus. He opens up his letter, really the first two chapters, reminding the Christians who Jesus is, that he sacrificed himself, and that his sacrificial way is the way for us to adopt in the relationships and in the relational situations that we find ourselves in and how we should navigate the world around us. Now last week, Nick read through 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17, and today we're going to pick up at 2.17 and follow through to some highlight passages in chapter 3 because it's in these sections that Peter becomes very practical. If you want to know how you should actually live in light of your circumstances as followers of Jesus around people that are not followers of Jesus and around people that might be making your life difficult because you are a follower of Jesus, if you want to know how to live, and not only how to live, but why you should live this way, Peter has something to say about that. And so I want to take us back to verse 17 and then the verses that follow it to do that this morning. Peter says, honor everyone, love the family of believers, have respectful fear of God, honor the emperor. 
Household slaves, submit by accepting the authority of your masters with all respect. Do this not only to good and kind masters, but also to those who are harsh. Now, it is commendable if, because of one's understanding of God, someone should endure pain through suffering unjustly. But what praise comes from enduring patiently when you have sinned and are beaten for it? But if you endure steadfastly when you've done good and suffer for it, this is commendable before God. Now, Peter's going to go on a few verses later into chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, and say the following to wives. It says, Wives, likewise, submit to your own husbands. Do this so that even if some of them refuse to believe the word, they may be won without a word by their wives' way of life. After all, they will have observed the reverent and holy manner of your lives. And he goes on uh, with this description and exhorting wives in these situations what that honorable conduct looks like. But if you think he's left the husbands out, he hasn't. In verse 7, he says the following, Husbands, likewise. By the way, this word likewise is very key because it keeps coming up because he keeps pointing back to an important example. He says, Husbands, likewise, Submit by living with your wife in ways that honor her, knowing that she is the weaker partner. Honor her all the more as she is also a co-heir of the gracious care of life. Do this so that your prayers won't be hindered. And then he concludes in verses 8 through 9. He says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, sympathetic, lovers of your fellow believers, compassionate and modest in your opinion of yourselves. Don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, give blessing in return. You were called to do this so that you might inherit a blessing. See, Oftentimes we come to these passages and in our modern sensibilities, we have a tendency to debate the merits of what they mean and how we should enact them in our own lives and especially considering modern social circumstances being a bit different than they were back in the day. You see, back in the day, at Peter's time, in the Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish world, but definitely in the Greco-Roman world that these Christians are residing in, uh, the Roman world had what uh, is commonly called household codes. And basically it was a chain of command. And the oldest man in the house was the patriarch. And yes, I say the oldest man in the house for a reason. Because... Oftentimes in these homes, there were multiple generations. So just because you were the husband to your immediate family doesn't mean you were always the head because your dad might be living at home. And when you're under dad's roof, dad's rules apply. You probably heard that even, you know, I heard that growing up. But you get the point. So that's the way that it worked. And there was a hierarchy from then. So the men of, of the house were up at the top of the hierarchy. And then you had the wives, the women in the house. And then you had children. And then you had slaves. Many homes in this world had slaves. P- 
people that were uh, put into uh, forced labor working conditions, oftentimes in the Roman world, uh, people that were not well off, that were destitute and needed to make ends meet, would sell themselves into slavery in order to have a roof over the head and have the care and provision that was provided by the household. And obviously, when you are in situations where you've got somebody in charge over you based off of these levels of hierarchy, life can be difficult based off of the conduct of the people that are above you. I think on some level, many of us have experienced this. If you've ever worked in a job and had a boss before, you've heard the saying, people don't quit workplaces, they, they, they quit bosses people because if someone does good to you you want to repay that good and if things are not going well for you because the boss is mistreating you you might not want to stick around but in this world that these Christians were living in just easily up and getting on indeed.com and finding a new job wasn't exactly an easy way to get out of a bad situation. You're oftentimes at the mercy of your circumstances. Now many people today will look at these situations and say, well, those weren't ideal situations. And I wish Peter and Paul and James and John and all the people that followed Jesus and wrote these letters would have come in and said, we're done with this. We're abolishing all these household codes and all these ways of life, right? Right? That's what we want when we read these things and we see the ways that people are being treated. It's hard to read Peter's words to the slaves and say to do good to the masters when they're mistreating them. It messes with us a bit. But that's why it's important not to get hung up on the what in this passage, but the why. Why does Peter continually tell slaves and wives, and husbands to conduct themselves in an honorable way, even in the face of people that are above them mistreating them. Well, I'll tell you why, and it's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus is why. You know, when Jesus was arrested... He could have called down an army of angels to get rid of his captors. In fact, in one story, when Jesus speaks, I am he, when they're looking for him, his mere voice causes them to fall back onto the ground. That is how powerful Jesus was. That's how powerful Jesus is. And yet, those of us that have been in church for a long time know the story he willingly gave himself up to be a ransom for many. He willingly gave himself up to be put through a sham trial, to be wrongly convicted, and to ultimately be crucified as a treasonous traitor against Rome because his own people, the Jewish leaders, thought he was a treasonous traitor and blasphemer for claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus, with all that power to retaliate, gave himself up. 
And I think all of us are probably pretty grateful for that, right? If you're here, I believe one of two things is probably true about you. You either aim to follow Jesus with your whole being and made that commitment at some point in your life, or at the very least, if you haven't made that commitment, you are open to exploring that and want to know more about what Jesus is all about. And so, what Jesus did is what he calls his disciples to emulate. And his disciples, Peter being one of them, now calls the other believers that are living in Asia Minor at this time and dealing with persecution to emulate the way of Jesus. And the why behind that goes beyond just Jesus being the answer. At every refrain, every refrain, Peter says, do this so that the other party will be won over. For instance, he says, if you are a slave and you act wicked and you take a beating for it, what good is that? But if you have a harsh master and you take a beating for doing good conduct, and you don't retaliate. Your master might see your goodness and they might be won over to the way of Christ. Do you know what happens when not so good people are won over to Jesus? Do you know what he can do to them through the power of the Spirit? He can change them. Oh, guess what? You can't. You can't change people. God can. And if you believe that, then you have to believe that the way that God wants to change people through you is the right way to do it. So then he goes on. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Why does he say this? So that in your honorable conduct, without even a word, you will win over your husband. Why is that the case? Well, in the Roman world with these household codes, if you were a husband, you could pretty much mistreat anybody in your household that's under your rule. And so that might not be a good circumstance if you're a woman who has come to the faith. We know that from Jesus' earliest days of making disciples that women followed him and became his disciples. It doesn't always tell us that their husband came along for the ride. So what happens when they have this new Jesus-transformed kingdom way of life and they bring it back into the home and their husbands are acting the same way that they always do. But Peter says that the women can win over their husbands by their honorable, godly conduct. And then he turns to the husbands, and he says the same thing, except he kind of reverses it. Because in most cases, the husbands, being the men in the house, probably had the most power. So he basically says, by the way, this translation uses this word submit here, but we need to get a lot of what we think about submit out of our heads here because what's actually going on is the person in power laying down their right to power in order to treat the other party better. Sounds kind of like Jesus, right? the guy that had the power to knock someone down with his voice but still handing himself over 
The husband has the power in this situation, and yet they are called to treat their wives well, to be honorable. Why? Because some of these husbands probably went along and were discipled by the disciples of Jesus and came to the faith, and their wives haven't come to the faith. And by changing their conduct because they're aligning with Jesus, they may win their wife over to the faith. And it goes back to that first verse, which was the last verse that Nick read last week. When Peter says, honor everyone, love the family of believers, have respectful fear of God, honor the emperor. See, the things that he says to slaves and wives and husbands translates over into your bosses and your friends and people in the military and people in power positions, police, firefighters, your local clerk. Oh, and yes, by the way, your family members, some of whom may not be people of the faith. How you conduct yourselves around other people is a testimony to your faithfulness to Jesus. And that's why I want us to take this away this morning. When our words and deeds walk hand in hand, we pave a path that beckons hearts to embrace God's kingdom. See, we don't have the power to change people, but the power of God through us can be the light that leads them to the change agent. And God's plan A is for us to live in tandem with the way that he calls us to live. And not only the way he calls us to live, but the way that his son, Jesus, exemplified it in the flesh. In every situation in life. And I think one of the hard parts about this is oftentimes, especially in our modern culture, where we want to make something of ourselves, where we want to be someone where we don't always want to feel that somebody else's thumb is over us, where we want to get ahead, where we want to stand up, where we want to beat up our bullies, where we imagine a day where they're getting theirs and we can laugh, ha, 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 they got what they deserved. But my friends, that is not the way of Jesus at all. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, an apt, appropriate name for the sons of Zebedee because they really like calling down fire from heaven to thwart their enemies, which Jesus has to be like, you're being nonsensical. Well, these guys one day got their mom involved and she came to Jesus and asked them, asked Jesus, hey, I want you to give my boys the seats of power, one at your right and one at your left. Of course, this didn't go over well for them. Number one, they made the rest of the disciples mad by their mom going and requesting this. And I can only imagine, knowing how guys are, that they let them have it for a while for getting their mommy involved. Okay. Not a, not a good idea here. But Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. And in 
chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, it says that Jesus called them over and said, You know that those who rule the Gentiles show off their authority over them, and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. I have heard it said once that if you are asking who you get to be in charge of, you have missed the plot of the kingdom of God. What you should be asking is who can I serve? Who can I call to Jesus? Who can I be a light to? Who can I show kindness to? All for the sake of pointing them to God. The only one that can turn their life upside down and turn it around and give them abundant life, life everlasting. That, that is our calling. You know, I'm going to give something away. As we go through this year, we're going to go through many different books of the Bible. Yes, we're going to do Habakkuk. We're going to do Revelation we're going to do other minor prophets. We're going to come back to 2 Peter. Might as well do 1 Peter and then do 2 Peter in July. You know, start the first half of each half of the year with Peter. He's the best, really. But the reason is, is as we were thinking and, and as we were praying and, and as I've, I've thought about the voices of Scripture that lead people to the way of God amongst calamitous situations, I couldn't help but think what was coming 2024, it's an election year. We're already revved up to throw haymakers with our words online. Real scary. But anyway, we're already revved up to tell the other side, the other team, the other people in the world how bad they are. We're already bracing for people to tell us how awful we are. We're already thinking about how at the next family get-together, we're not going to get along with each other. Oh, and by the way, with this whole national backdrop, when everybody's on edge, do you feel really good relating to other people when you're on edge? I know that if I have a very stressed out day, I'm not always even pleasant to be around in my own home. I get agitated when my kid yells too loud and all this different stuff. It happens. People, we're human. And we're walking into a situation this year where it's going to be easy to look at everybody else in your life as the enemy. And if you don't believe that you don't often look at other people like the enemy, it's really easy to even turn the people you love the most into the enemy just because you're on edge. You see, for the church in First Peter... Everybody around them, whether in their home or outside of it, easily became an enemy because when they turned to the faith, when they followed Jesus, and they went a different way, when they became set apart, others recognized it and had a problem with it. And the moment somebody has a problem with you or detracts from what you believe, they can easily become an enemy. But here's the thing about the enemies of God is that instead of smiting all of them, he sent his son to die for them. 
And by the way, you and I were once enemies of God too. So if we were once enemies of God and God saved us through his son Jesus, what, is it, what do you think he wants to do with your enemies? If you don't know the answer, I'm just going to tell you he wants to save them, not kill them, not send them to hell but to save them for all of eternity, to give them abundant life. And by the way, if that's what God wants for them, it's what you and I should too. So this year, starting in 1 Peter, looking at what it means for us to be set apart, we're going to look at the voices of the set apart and what they say as we go about this entire year having to deal with a world that wants to make everybody into an enemy. And that's fine. Everybody can be our enemy. But church, followers of Jesus, do you know what we're going to do with our enemies? We're going to love them. On that note, let's take communion. Because as I said, while we were enemies, God showed that he loved each and every one of us by sending his son. And every week when we take communion, we remember, we celebrate, we acknowledge the example of Jesus' love for us and we are compelled to love our enemies. So I'm going to give us a moment to be quiet, to be still, and to contemplate how much God loves us and how much he wants us to love those around us so that they can know him and have abundant life. And after we've had that moment of quiet, we will take communion together as a church family. I invite each of you to take the bread from this cup and eat. This is his body which is given for us. And in the same way, I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your love that despite how far we've fallen, despite what we've done, despite our one-time enemy status, that you loved us enough to send your son, Jesus. And I pray, God, that as we embrace your grace, that we will be grace givers to those that are around us, whether they're in our home, outside our home, whether they're in our workplace, whether they're in our friend groups, whether they're on the other side of the aisle, let us be people that love, that lay down our lives for others, 
because that's what you did for us and that's what you want for them. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.